Does a liberal society need to be democratic? Today on The Curious Task, I'm talking with Jacob Levy. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today our guest is Jacob Levy. Jacob is Tomlinson Professor of Political Theory, Professor of Political Science, and Associated Faculty in the Department of Philosophy at McGill University. His areas of research include liberal and constitutional theory, federalism and local self-government, multiculturalism and nationalism, freedom of association, and the history of political thought, especially centered on the 18th century and Montesquieu. He is the author of many books and articles, including Rationalism, Pluralism and Freedom, and The Multiculturalism of Fear. When he's not lecturing, he's keeping libertarians on Twitter in line. Don't be caught giving a lecture or speech in an informal set of clothing around this man. Jacob Levy, thank you for being with us today. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So, Jacob, in each episode, we kick it right off with a question and go wherever the answers lead us. So let's do it. Does a liberal society need to be democratic? There's there's a familiar answer, um, an answer that a lot of classical liberals and libertarians have been attracted to, but that uh, was also attractive to non-libertarian liberals, um, even through the Cold War, that says the form of government is something at a right angle from the question of what government does. And what liberalism or classical liberalism is, is a theory about what government should do. Liberalism is a theory about freedom of religion. It's a theory about freedom of speech. It's a theory about market protective rules uh, governing economic life. And any government that does those things, therefore, is a liberal government. And as liberals, we're going to be agnostic on the question of what form of government happens to do a good job if in some particular setting, some particular local circumstance, it seems like a dictator, an autocracy, a one-party state is better at it because of the local constellation of political views, well then, so much the worse for democracy. I think this has been a serious mistake. I think it's something that's contributed to a great deal of confusion in classical liberal thought in particular and has created an ongoing temptation and fantasy to project onto particular autocrats or particular dictators um, an image that, well, they will remake the world according to a libertarian blueprint, and then we will have freedom. And to treat there as not being a cost in freedom to entrusting things to the dictator in addition to a variety of other kinds of problems with uh, interesting dictatorship relative to democracy, and a misunderstanding, I think, of the basic underlying moral affinity between liberalism and democracy. Uh, so I really want to push the case that the the free society under circumstances that are like ours, and who knows what things are like in centuries, I do believe that things change, but in circumstances, anything recognizably like ours, free societies are going to be democratic societies. And I really want classical liberals to get over the, uh, the agnosticism about forms of government that tends to actually spill over into being a kind of trollish skepticism about government. Look how brave and clever I am to call for dictatorship when dictatorship is what will make us freer. It won't make us freer, and there are deep recurring reasons for that. Well, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the underlying aspects of democracy that ultimately mean that the society will be freer. So I want to start with history. I want to start with the the condition of the world as we find it. Classical liberals are opportunistically fond of saying, uh, of appeals to this kind of thing. They'll say, well, look, it turns out that no socialist society has ever managed to deliver wealth and growth over time for various kinds of definitions of socialism. Look, it was only with the advent of markets that we got the Industrial Revolution and the takeoff in economic well-being. And for certain stipulated definitions of all those things, I think those are true statements. It is also a true statement that the market capitalist commercial societies where that takeoff happened were always democratic for their era and democratizing. Uh, And none of them managed it until they reached a substantial threshold of democratic government. Um, They they had to rest on a broadly participatory base 
at least as among elites, hmm. and then gradually embarked on the process of um, spreading out that franchise base. I draw heavily on the book Violence and Social Orders by uh, Douglas North, John Wallace, and Barry Weingast. And in Violence and Social Orders, North Wallace and Weingast say, the traditional natural political order was one of a coalition of elites that bargained with each other for the power and ability to exploit those they ruled. And they kept to themselves the rights to organize. They kept to themselves the rights to politically organize. They kept to themselves the right to economically organize so that they could solve their collective action problems and then leave a kind of atomized mass of people over whom they ruled, whom they could tax, conscript, employ, ex, uh, exploit, enslave, and so on. And they say it's only with the rise of what they call open access orders, starting at about 1800, that you saw the beginning of the commercial capitalist takeoff. And the open access orders made those organizational tools very broadly open. The familiar example would be that they, the societies turned the right to incorporate from something that was only granted by royal monopoly charter into something that any couple of people can do by filing a piece of paper for any legitimate and lawful purpose, what are called acts of general incorporation, that just completely revolutionized what corporations mean in the world from being tools of royal power from being precisely the mercantilist institutions that Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations uh, was deeply devoted to trying to overturn. So the East Indian Tea Company. The East, in the East India Company, the Hudson Bay Company, to being just any kind of organizational firm, profit or nonprofit, uh, for which people wanted to be able to create a new legal person that could enter into contracts and own property and could outlive the founders. Uh, that, that's a base broadening of the organizational tool of corporation. Well, what happens at the same time in the same societies and really as part of the same process is that the tools of political organization, like the right to form political parties, like the right to engage in the franchise, the right to have a direct say, on it, uh, are also broadened. They're part of the same phenomenon. That looks to me like the kind of big historical fact that if we are the kinds of people who say things like, well, we needed commercial capitalism in order to get the economic takeoff, look at the big facts. Well, a big fact is that those societies were also broadening inclusion in the political sphere. And they were doing so for the sake of restraining the exploitative, rent-seeking, domineering power of elites. The ability to take part in the open market economy as we recognize it, as we come to understand of the 19th and 20th centuries, just isn't historically disentangleable from the ability to take part in open political processes, that is to say democracy. Uh, so, so that's a place I think to start, is not with the fantasy that says, ah, if only the dictator were my friend, right. or most often my student, if only I had properly taught the, the right collection of uh, anarcho-capitalist texts to some future politician who then went on to become ruler, um, then he would implement everything I wanted. Look at the circumstance in which roughly liberal market economies have been able to take root and their democratic circumstances. Start off by taking that seriously. That, that, that's where I would start from. Then there are things about values and underlying moral philosophy that we can talk about if you like, but um, I, I think that historical fact is a powerful one, and I think it's very underappreciated by the the fantasists of the the liberal dictator who will implement exactly what I want. And so, what you're ultimately saying is that the framework that the market in this example would, would rest in is just as important to consider as the market itself. Do Do you think that what some of the fantasists do is overestimate? what the market can do and underestimate the importance of demo democracy and democratic institutions? Is it that they just don't want to talk about it? Like, where does this fantasy come from? So both of the things that you just said are true. Um, but I think there's an additional component too, which is 
once you're in an open access order, the elites have in a certain sense been tamed. And the background understanding of politics as simply naturally being where the king and the nobles and the great economic lords and the priests get together to exploit the rest of us fades into the background. What you have starts to look instead like a political contest between different visions of how to operate the general political power, the general public power of the open access order. So you get a party competition, say, between a liberal party and a socialist party. Okay. That then comes to occupy the whole imagination of some of the liberals. They imagine the only threat to liberty is the socialists who are going to come in and pass a general law raising general taxes when the whole order rests on having successfully overcome that coalition of exploitative elites exercising public power for strictly private gain. And uh, that, that historical transformation gets so rapidly forgotten that the socialists start to look like the enemy to overcome, and then the fantasists look around for any strongman ally who can help them overcome the socialists. Well, strongman ruling is exactly what we needed to overcome in order to get into the open access order to begin with. So one, one of the problems there is that they don't look at the competition of ideas in that case between, let's say, a labor or a socialist party against any other party. They don't look at that in and of itself as a victory of the framework that that's, we live within. That's exactly right. And in your essay, Political Libertarianism, you said that a lack of proper libertarian or classical liberal politics and understanding of the politics leaves those who are proponents of liberalism ill-equipped to deal with threats against it anyway. So that's, that's a thought about where we are in constitutional market democracies right now. That's mm. a thought about the contemporary crisis. I think that the, the ongoing fantasy of writing libertarian policy conclusions into, a political, into the foundation of political system once and for all, and therefore not having to ever do politics ever again, has tended to align libertarians with political forces that imagine politics as a kind of once and for all victory of the whole of the people. For other reasons, maybe, as well. For other reasons. That that's right. Um, it, makes it, it makes libertarians reluctant to engage in the normal partial partisanship of give and take and disagreement. Um, makes us reluctant to say, well, we're going to fight in elections and we will lose some of them. We might lose most of them. Um, but we think that the business of give and take and disagreement and winning and losing elections is the normal business. Um, the fantasy of once and for all overcoming that normal business of disagreement, well, that leads to an attraction to the kinds of political forces that put themselves forward as representing the whole of the people, which is to say populism, which is to say in really existing societies, the populism of ethnocultural and ethno-nationalist majorities. So without the, without libertarians and classical liberals having a proper approach to politics or a better approach to politics, you, there's a temptation to basically, as you said, say, well, that group right there, that's the problem. If we got rid of that group, then we're good. As opposed to saying, well, the competition of ideas, let's actually win a political contest. Because elsewhere in one of your essays, you basically say that um, one of the problems is that some people, some people that call themselves libertarians and classical liberals don't look at a political contest as a political contest, simply with some, you win some, you lose some. They look at it as either you have an ultimate moral victory and an ultimate moral loss. And it's, that's sort of the end of the story. And maybe if, if the Labour Party wins one in one round, it's the end of the world. So that's right. That's right. And uh, that, I think, has meant that it was too hard for market liberals and classical liberals and libertarians to understand the dangers of rising right-wing authoritarian nationalism and populism right. in the constitutional democracies of the West. Um, and it's something that we saw from time to time in the Cold War. You saw the attraction to right-wing dictators who would say market-friendly things to some market liberal economists who would then say, ah, this dictator will solve all our problems for us and then we will have a free society forevermore in that country. We're starting to see it now in Brazil hmm. where a very thuggish populist uh, aspirational dictator um, someone who admires the military dictatorship, someone who openly talks about wanting to go back to the deep human rights abuses of that era, uh, 
puts a few market liberals into policymaking positions and convinces a whole bunch of market liberals. Says, Aha, uh, who cares about that boring constitutionalism stuff? Who cares about winning elections? Um, we are now going, we, we now have our uh, proper student who is going to listen to us and is going to implement everything that we tell them to. A section of the forest was given over to private power. We're good. There's this clearly market liberalism in action. That's right. And uh, you, you also discussed in, in political libertarianism how, and you did touch on this before, but I would like you to go a little more into it. You said that ultimately it's it's silly to think that this stuff will be fixed through something like constitution writing or just always trying to get that framework done once and for all. Now, it would be difficult for someone who disagrees with everything you've been saying right now to really reconcile that with what they feel, because a lot of people in the libertarian circles, that's what they focus on, right? If the Constitution is structured in such a way, we've solved the problem. If, if we can make sure that the government is restrained a certain way, there we go, that's a victory. So he, here's the intuition that they're working from. And it's not that I think that it's a crazy intuition. It's not that I think that it never has any bite to it. Um, when you have, for example, an open political contest over the question, what religion shall we establish? Then you're in for a set of constantly shifting, deeply furious and antagonistic coalitions, uh, a kind of political, religious war of all against all. And it is possible to transform politics with a constitutional rule that says, let's establish no religion. Constitutionalizing it improves politics. It improves the quality of democratic engagement that you get um, precisely by taking one category of decision off the table altogether. It actually enables better contestation. There are, I think, people who are very concerned about narrow sector rent-seeking economic activity in politics who analogize to that religion case and say, if you make politics about the question, what business shall we subsidize, hmm. then you're going to have a constant political economic war of all against all. Everybody always scrambling to feed at the public trough, and we can get better politics out of constitutionalizing a rule that says no subsidies. Uh, taking it off the table will mean that you get a market-friendlier democratic setting and a democratic setting that allows for a stable outcome. That, that's not a crazy argument. Um, it's an argument that was very important to James Buchanan and the beginnings of public choice theory. It's an argument that I think has been taken to be the whole of what classical liberals should think about democracy and politics. It's, it's really outgrown its usefulness. Right. But, but, but it's, it's a useful idea. Mm -hmm. And as a matter of fact, in your essay, you did mention that you were trying to avoid using the word rent-seeking mm -hmm. as much as mm -hmm. possible because it's become this sort of overused yeah. and in, in a way cheapened term that people use. You said, oh, people, yeah. it's a fact of life and people give up on it now. A subsidy here, some crony capitals in there, ah, yeah, sure, that's that's what we deal with, so let's let's just get rid of it. And it, it's become sort of a, almost like a table-stakes libertarian yeah. position at this yeah. point. Yeah. So for that kind of small-bore rent-seeking, a subsidy here, a subsidy there, uh, we can see the point of trying to constitutionalize things off the table. But that intuition has been allowed to overgrow its boundaries into being a claim that we can abolish rent-seeking. We can abolish the use of political power for the sake of economic interest uh, in a way that really amounts to saying, well, we have to write libertarian policy views into the founding constitutional right. document and prevent all economic intervention and regulation, which is to say to prevent all of the stuff that all political societies have always contested and competed over. Mm. The, there's no possibility of constitutionalizing out of the basic setting of politics in which people are pursuing their own private aims. And the aspiration to do so leads to the neglect of what the interests are of the elites who will then be immunized against democratic contestation. So when that basic public choice thought, for example, grows over into a skepticism of universal suffrage, you will still sometimes see people trollishly saying, well, we ought to have a property minimum threshold for suffrage. There ought to be a ban on voting by people who are receiving public assistance. There ought to be a ban on voting by people who are employed by the state. Uh, without recognizing that the category that they're then leaving over is itself an economic interest group. 
the landed, the property, mm-hmm. the wealthy. And the landed, the property, the wealthy, they have economic interests of their own for which they will use the state. That was the natural political order before the rise of the open access society. Right. Even if the constitu- and constitution says no cronyism, no rent-seeking, that, that's what that is in effect. That is exactly what that is in effect. You're turning political power over to the group that, for most of human history, has exercised it in its own interest and done the most to close off the rise of the open commercial society from which we now all benefit. So even if there's a place for constitutionalizing rules against various bits of small bore rent-seeking, I think the, the idea of constitutionalizing the whole of political economy, everything that is up for political dispute about the economy, well, for one thing, it's always a fantasy because it always amounts to saying, We don't think that we can win 51% in election after election. So let's imagine what we will do when we win the 67% or 75% supermajority that allows us to write the constitution of our choice, um, or else when we have a coup and our preferred dictator writes the constitution of our choice. Uh, So there's there's this very strange fantasy character to how it would happen. Right. If we were that powerful, then we would just win some elections. but there's also a deep misunderstanding about what political power looks like after the counter-revolution hmm. um, and how much then a class has been created that will still be using political power in its own interests. And it's a set of interests that, while they're anti-left and anti-socialist, and if you've grown up thinking that all the, the, the only enemy to keep sight of is socialism, then that sounds great. But uh, while they're anti-left and anti-socialist, they're also anti-market. Right. They're deeply committed to the protection of incumbent economic advantage, which markets tend to undermine. They're the contemporary equivalents of the feudal landowners who hated having all of their economic possessions put up into the world of market competition. Mm -hmm. They wanted entail and primogeniture so that their lands couldn't ever be sold off. It was the market liberals who said, no, no, we have to turn all existing land holdings into exchangeable property. The, the existing incumbents don't ever favor the ability of their stuff right. to get sold out from under them. Yeah, Milton Friedman once quipped, there's two enemies of the market, the politician and the businessman. Yes. Um, and, and while Not an exhaustive list by any no, means. No, no. And, and I, I do think that Friedman is one of the people who was responsible for this kind of slippage between small bore rent seeking things and um, an image of the constitutionalized political economy. Friedman was great on the small bore rent seeking stuff and he did as much as anyone else, probably more than anyone else, to make make it understandable mm-hmm. to a general audience what rent seeking looked like and how it is that one economic sector at a time will capture enough state power to grab goodies for itself, grab subsidies for itself, grab exemptions for itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways in which regulations that purport to be in the public interest will often be incumbent protection devices. But his interest was all in that one sector at a time, small bore stuff. Very true. And I think by now the language of rent seeking, as it's come down to us through public choice, so much calls all that stuff to mind that it makes it hard for classical liberals who are trained in that kind of thing to really keep track of the real risk of a return to just generalized rule by the rich or rule by the landed or ruled by the propertied, rule by the traditionally powerful uh, who aren't looking for one little subsidy at a time. Right. They're looking to capture the whole of state power in their own right. interest. They want to control the framework, That's not, right. a few, not a few areas in the sandbox, but the sandbox itself. Yes. Well, let, let's get into the different types of power then. Because in your essay, Political Libertarianism, again, you talked about we the problems of governing when it comes to power we can categorize power in a, in three different buckets we have uh, private power general public power and particular public power and you said that especially in the context of this discussion ultimately it's that third category that a lot of people forget about of course i'd like you to go through all those real quick and explain what we're talking about here but then maybe what our discussion here is leading towards that third category that we have to be worried about that's right um the, that's that's a framework in that chapter for trying to draw these distinctions that I'm talking about between, say, the kind of political contest we get between liberals and socialists in a generally market constitutional democracy 
everybody, say, operating under the rule that says all of the laws have to be general laws and you're just fighting over how high the tax rate will be, that's, that's a dispute over how to use general political power. You take for granted the open access order and you contest about exactly what the general rules will be. That is to say there, there is a general public power. It's the government. Where do we point the ship? How is it used against, against or for everybody? That's general public power. That's right. Um, and, and as I said, I think that once you live in that world, it becomes possible to start imagining the possibility of private political power away uh, and that it's a deep mistake when, when the whole apparatus of the state is subordinated to the interest of one group, when, when the state is the tool of an ethnocultural group, when the state is the tool of a religious majority, when the state is the tool of the propertied or the aristocrats. Uh, and there's not even a background presumption that says laws should be general. Um, of course laws aren't general because, well, the purpose of the state isn't to be general. The purpose of the state is to serve the interests of the particular class that dominates it. That's a normal way to do politics. That's the traditionally most prevalent way to do hmm. politics in human history. Um, power is useful. And if you have power, then you use it in order to protect your power in the future. When, when we imagine away the possibility of that kind of private dominance of public power, then we start to slip into, we now meaning we classical liberals in particular, we start to slip into the language of thinking, well, the only task that we have to solve constitutionally is how to limit the state. The general public power. The general public power without understanding that constituting the general public power, protecting it against that falling back into dominance by one group, um, that's hard political work. That can't be taken for granted. Um, and the various ways to simply limit the state tends to neglect um, the, the ongoing permanent desire on the part of one class or another to grab the whole thing for itself. This, this, again, tends to favor the framing that says the great contest is between liberalism and socialism because liberalism and socialism are both contending over the use of the general public power uh, and to neglect the underlying and, – and, and the class of liberals say, well, the way that we'll secure our victory is by constitutionalizing a rule that says no socialism. <laughs> Neglecting the background conditions of what makes the constitutional democratic open access order market economy that whole system – possible, what protects it against reverting to the traditional mode of dominance and power by one group. Great. I think it's a great place to take a break. So we'll be back in a sec. We're here with Jacob Levy. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Peter Jaworski, Rosa Pagliarello, and Janet Bufton. Remember to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at CuriousTaskILS. Welcome back, everyone. We're talking here with Jacob Levy. Jacob, before the break, we were talking about the difference between a, a general uh, public power and, and particular public power. I'm wondering if you feel that uh, in classical liberal and libertarian circles, people are hyper-focused on general public power while not really being as concerned as they should be with a particular public power because uh, classical liberalism and libertarianism, when you, when you talk to, to many of them, they, of course, have a, um, their beliefs are grounded in sort of um, individualism or maybe a radical form of individualism. And they're not taking seriously the fact that uh, society is ultimately a set of groups. Of course, individuals make up these groups, but is there uh, a, a place or a set of people in classical liberalism, libertarianism that don't take that seriously enough? Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is, again, another effect of living in an open access order and taking it for granted. One of the things the open access order does is it enshrines the status of the, uh, the, the legal individual person as equal to all other legal individual persons, and it makes it easy to imagine that that's just the way that political orders are. Um, this generates an attraction to a certain kind of social contract theory 
as an imagination backwards of where politics came from. Well, we all got together as individuals, and we decided how to build a government that we individuals could unanimously agree upon. Um, I'm kind of notoriously an institute for liberal circle, institute for liberal studies circles, um, known as a critic of social contract theory and a critic of John Locke and of the that model of how you build a free society. We, we got contracts, we got individuals, we got property, we're good. That's Everyone right. move on. That's right. And um, and in my book, Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, I talk about how important to the development of classical liberalism uh, a rival, pluralistic, more group-oriented understanding was hmm. uh, and the way in which balances between group power and state power, worries about group power and state power, but taking seriously the groupishness of our social orders in a way that Lockean contract theory couldn't ever do, but that my intellectual hero Montesquieu built his whole theory on doing. Um, taking the groupishness of social orders seriously led to very different understandings about where political power came from, where abuses of political power could come from, and also what ongoing contestation about political power would look like. If you start from a Lockean model, well, you're imagining unanimity. It's the only way to solve the problem of the state of nature. All of us individuals, we all have the right to veto going into society. So uh, the only way that we're going to go into society is through the things that we all unanimously agree upon. That sets up a distorted model of what politics looks like, and it leads to a distrust of the normal business of, say, partisan contestation in democratic life that we've been talking about already. If you start from groupishness, if you take seriously that, well, part of the role of constitutional politics is to make possible the peaceful coexistence of the messy, lumpy social groupings that make up the fabric of a society. For people to imagine this, would you like how small should we start? Like, like families in an example of groupishness? How should they imagine what you're saying is groupishness? A, a neighborhood? Like where do we kind of start with that sort of model? Um, while while families count for a few philosophical purposes, uh, mostly we're dealing with larger groups than that. We might okay. be dealing with uh, religious communities, we might be dealing with linguistic communities, uh, the kinds of groups that will later on over the course of the 19th century come to be called nations. Right. Um, they, they might be regional regional political economy worlds, you know, the world of the, the fishing communities in the Atlantic provinces. That's, that's a relevant kind of groupishness mm -hmm. that's... Um, and politics is going to be made out of groups like that. Uh, I also am interested in formal secondary associations, things like universities, things like the Lawyers Guild, um, organizations that tend to exercise a kind of authority over their members and then tend to speak in the name of their members uh, when they go and enter into politics. Uh, but these are all the, the stuff that in democratic political science will get talked about as interest groups or when you want to say it with a sneer special interests right uh, well what a society is made out of is lots and lots and lots of special interests um, Adam Smith has a marvelous passage in uh, the final edition of the theory of moral sentiments uh, one line of which is kind of famous in classical liberal circles which is that the man of system is very wise in his own conceit um, and he imagines that he can order the whole of society like ordering men on a chessboard. But when you look at the Man of System passage as a whole, it's about two paragraphs long, what it is the Man of System imagines he can do is to do away with all of the groups in society. He imagines that he can do away with towns and provinces and guilds and corporations and all of the ways that people have attachments to things that are smaller than the state. The man of system imagines that he can make the state the only group and to create a world in which there's nothing but state and individuals. Hmm. And that's what Smith indicts as being the real hubris. Uh, well, that's a hubris to which subsequently I think some classical liberals have become heir. Uh, there, there's a, an underlying groupishness to the social order that has real dangers and risks of its own. This is not just a celebration on my part, and we need to worry about 
the power that groups can have over their members. And Adam Smith was worried about the power, for example, that guilds could have over their members mm -hmm. um, and over the people who they were then excluding from access to the market. But we need to treat that as the stuff of politics, what we build politics out of. That means contests and disagreement are going to be the normal condition of politics, not lock-in individualistic unanimity. It's not as if, if, if all the individuals were just left alone, there'd be no group conflicts That's and the state's right. causing all the problem. That's right. And so the business of constitutional government is always going to be this very messy balancing act. Um, you need enough public power to be able to restrain the power of groups over their members. You need enough autonomy of public power that the state can resist dom being dominated as an entity by private power holders. Mm -hmm. um, that is, say, you protect the, the, the generality of political power against domination by private interests. Uh, and then you need to limit the state. You need to provide ways to protect individuals against the state directly. But that last step isn't the only step. The business of constitutionalism is not only the business of protecting individuals against the state. It's the business of making sure that you have a state of the right kind to begin with, and that it is sustainable, and that it has the ability to protect individuals against their own groups, members of private groups against other private groups. And all of that is going to be ongoing and messy. It's not something that gets settled once and for all. That is to say, we're going to keep doing politics. And the wish to do without it or do away with it is an unhealthy one. And many classical liberals and libertarians do seem to wish that it wasn't there. Oh, if we could just get rid of this pesky political game that we play every few years, whatever the case in whatever the country, things would be great. If we just once again set up the framework properly, we can get rid of all this uh, th this political nonsense. That's when right. in reality, what you're saying is this is this is this is it. This is the balancing act. People are living it every day, and if classical liberals and libertarians are sitting on the sideline complaining about it, they're they're not participating, and they aren't in fact involved in that balancing act. And the, that's and, the problem. Um, I mean, they may well be doing worse than that. They may be contributing to a delegitimation mm. of it. Uh, if the preservation of general public power is a prerequisite for maintaining the open access society. If we really need to prevent the rise of um, strongman rule mm -hmm. or the reassertion of class interest or nationalist interest to dominate the state, uh, that probably can't be done in a condition of widespread distrust, widespread radical distrust mm -hmm. of the institutions of public life. Uh, and if individualists or libertarians or classical liberals or market liberals stand off to the side and do nothing but complain, the business of voting is a corrupt, vile business, the business of governing is nothing but a corrupt, violent business, uh, unable to distinguish between constitutional, law-governed, generalized ways of doing those things and doing them purely for the sake of private violence or private power, uh, they may contribute to a decay in overall trust in the possibility mm -hmm. of decent constitutional democracy. And when you take away that system, power doesn't go away. Power just moves into the hands of those who have the capacity to wield it um, without having to contest for it in elections. That means those who are either powerful in society, the wealthy, or those who are powerful within the state, the army, those who have direct access to the, the use of state violence, mm -hmm. the police. Uh, By their very nature. That, that's right. Um, they don't get wished away just because you stand on the sidelines saying, voting is stupid and politicians are corrupt. There's still an army. There are still police. There are still wealthy people. All of those actors are going to continue to want to wield power, mm -hmm. and they're going to do so in circumstances that have less and less and less faith in the meaningfulness of constitutional restraint on any of it. And, and as you say, that's you're not taking a neutral position at that point. If you say, oh, I just don't do politics, you're actually uh, contributing to the damage being done to, to what you yourself, if you're a classical liberal, would view as the long-term good. I think that has to be right. I think that classical liberals have to be people who are committed to the value of the open access order and the 
imperfect, rough, but genuine kind of progress toward freedom that first Western democracies and then non-Western democratic market states uh, have been able to gain access to over the last 200 years. If you don't care whether that order rises or falls, Mm -hmm. then the fact that you say, well, but I would still own my property and I'd still have my rights, I think that you're, you're making a mistake about what kind of enterprise this is. I think in one of your articles related to this topic, I, you talked about, I think it was Benjamin Constant who talked... Constant. Constant. Apologies. The, um, he talked about retreating into private life, basically. That's what the open access order encourages. So you, you get this delusion that if you are, you can retreat nicely into your private life, you'll have your property, you'll have your family, you'll, you'll be a happy person. And once again, I don't do politics. That's what people, the fantasists, as you said, that's what they imagine could be possible. If, if there's one thing that I would love listeners of the podcast to read, it's Benjamin Constant's uh, lecture turned essay on the liberty of the ancients contrasted with that of the moderns, which just turned 200 years old this year. It's a brilliant piece of analysis written just as the open access order is beginning to crystallize. And he saw so much about it so clearly. One of the things that he saw was the the emerging desire on the part of people we would start to recognize as something like the rising liberal commercial bourgeoisie, mm-hmm. not to be bothered with politics. He thought the French commercial middle class, which was barely coming into existence at that point, but the French commercial middle class had sided with Napoleon because they were so afraid of the revolutionary mobs and they didn't know that they were going to be able able to win normal politics against the revolutionary mobs. And so they welcomed the strongman. And the strongman offered them a deal. The deal was, give me absolute political power and I'll protect your property. That is exactly the deal that I think property-oriented bourgeois liberals and libertarians have spent 200 years being tempted by. And Constant writes this wonderful account about how valuable private liberty is to the moderns. There's a reason why we, unlike the ancient Greeks, we want our liberty to be the liberty of the private sphere. We want to be able to worship as we see fit. We want the custody of our own souls, not to be subject to the gods of the city. We have more leisure time. We have the possibility of much greater wealth if we are left free to pursue our economic activities. Uh, And anyway, our societies are too big now for democracy to have the same kind of meaning for us that it had for the Athenians and the assemblies. It goes through this really lovely, brief, but impressive historical account about why we moderns of 1819 aren't going to give up all of our private liberty for the sake of democracy. But, he concludes, but that means we're going to be much too quick to take the Napoleonic bargain. Right. And we will empower a dictator at whose mercy we then live. Um, It's not as though there's any way to guarantee that he keeps his promises about respecting our property or respecting our religious liberty or anything else. We're going to empower a dictator for the sake of protecting us against the normal politics that might challenge us from the left. And, he says, not in these words, but in uh, concepts that we would translate in this way, if you want to be good liberals, you'd better remember to be good Democrats too. Mm. Um, It's going to be an absolutely vital feature of this new social order that we're entering into that it's a struggle to remember to do politics. You're going to be tempted right. not to want to do it, and you're going to need to do it. Hmm. And if you don't do it, you're going to keep collapsing into Napoleonic dictatorship where a strong man offers the middle class this bargain. And it's interesting because I'm writing in On Liberty, John Stuart Mill talks about you have dead truths and alive truths. Alive truths are the things you feel, you truly believe, you can argue for. A dead truth is something, it's maybe a fact or belief you inherit generationally or just by osmosis, but you don't really either know how to defend it or, or you, you don't really feel it. It's not something you can really fight for. Is the the um, the appreciation of democracy, is, is understanding the benefits of it and how important it truly is to uh, in, in open access order. Is that a dead truth to classical liberals now in, in that sort of way, to use I, John I, Stuart Mill's? I worry that the open access order has become a dead truth. Okay. And the relationship of democracy to it then has just become actually invisible. Mm, even worse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you talk a lot in your writings about uh, what the, the liberalism of fear is. So 
and that's essentially to my understanding and I, and I admit I haven't read as much as I should have about that particular subject but you're saying that people should actually live live in fear and not comfort when it comes to these types of things being taken away or, or the the open access order and its relationship to democracy becoming invisible this is something that the, we should be worried about um the, the the starting point is on the other side okay um, Montesquieu described liberty as security and the opinion that one has of one's security and as the right to do what the law allows. Now, those have been phrasings that have confused people. To say liberty is the right to do what the law allows, if you think in terms of um, taking the open access order for granted and all there are, are contests over the use of general public power, then that sounds like not liberty at all because, mm. well, the law is going to tell you things that you can't do. The law is going to restrict your liberty. But what Montesquieu is interested in there is to say, if I don't violate an enacted known law, the king's police can't punish me. The king's police can't seize me. They can't throw me into extrajudicial detention. They can't uh, throw me into a star chamber. There will be no lettre de cachet. There will be no torture. Uh, liberty is the knowledge that I can walk the streets without the secret police grabbing me. And I can sleep in my house at night without that knock coming on the door at night. Okay. Um, that the laws will be the most that the state can can enforce against me, um, not just raw, violent political power. The liberalism of fear is Judith Sklar's adaptation of that idea of Montesquieu's. That to be free is in part to be free from that political fear, the fear of especially the violent institutions of the state, the fear especially of the police, the secret police, the military, the paramilitary, the intelligence agencies. Um, that means it has a deep connection to the separation of powers and the rule of law. It means uh, part, part of what that security means isn't just the police can't grab me, but if the police grab me, I can go plead my case before an independent judge. Right. And the independent judge will not just work for the king or work for the president or work for the prime minister. They're not going to order that I be convicted because I'm a political opponent. They're not going to order that I can be convicted because I'm a member of a religious minority. I'm going to have the ability to get through a fair process. Mm. Um, those process institutions, they need to be constituted. They need to be protected. They don't naturally arise. You can't usefully describe constituting them as just limiting the state. Right. Um, they need to be organized and protected. Uh, and the whole business there is a business of making sure that you have procedure-governed, rule-governed, um, as it were, civilian political authorities in control over all of these people who are running around with guns. Not just some political power in charge of the people with guns, because that's the business of, well, the king can order you arrested because you're an enemy. Right. The party can order the secret police to your door in the middle of the night because you're an enemy of the party. Um, but also not letting the armed men just run free and do their own thing. That's the stuff of military coups and military dictatorships, and uh, you have no more freedom there than you do when the king is in charge of the secret police. It's trying to aim at a world of no secret police and no paramilitary that are, in effect, running the society through the sheer use of violence. That's the core of the liberalism of fear. Uh, it's something that Sklar emphasized and that I think classical liberals of Sklar's rough generation, and Sklar was a rough contemporary of Hayek and a frequent critic of Hayek, even though they drew on a lot of the same theoretical sources and there was a lot of overlap between them, something that a lot of classical liberals, including Hayek, didn't pay enough attention to. The rule of law for Hayek well, it starts off way back in the mists of English time as having this stuff to do with habeas corpus. That disappears in Hayek's understanding of the evolution of the rule of law over the centuries. And Schlar, I think, is right to appreciate how live a danger the power of the armed parts of the state and the power of the armed parts of the state when they're being used as political tools are. That doesn't go away just because habeas corpus got effectively turned into English law back in the 1600s. Um, Guantanamo exists to this day, and right. uh, border policing exists to this day, and the power of border police to grab people, throw them into a secret room, and say, if you can't prove to my satisfaction that you're a citizen, you never get to go before a judge, and eventually we're going to use 
all of these guns and throw you out of the country. That's a world that we still inhabit. Not, not to make too much of a quip of it, but at that point, that is pretty much exactly guilty until proven innocent. It, at that point. it absolutely is. Or in an important sense, it's a disregard. It's an uninterest in the question of guilt or innocence. Right, right. exactly. Um, even just the enterprise of thinking about guilty and innocent, that's the stuff of trials. And secret police don't operate on that logic at right. all. <laughs> right, exactly. So we, we've talked about the the fantasists who want to completely, as you said, decouple the idea of democracy uh, from, from markets and individualism, things like that. We've also talked about the other kind of fantasists that think that all of these problems we just talked about can be solved by constitution writing. Um, when it comes to... I, I think uh, that's basically the same fantasy. Yes, I guess that's true. Yeah, they, they tend to be the same person occupying the same two thoughts. When it, when it comes to how, how you view that people should uh, think of this, is it too simple to basically say that they should learn more about the process and actually think of engaging in political life as a positive thing? Uh, is, is that ultimately what you're, what you're gearing at here? That, that this should be something, as you were saying before, that's like looked at as a part of life, not something that's pesky that we have to deal with. I know I'm simplifying a lot, but is, but is that sort of ultimately what a good starting point for people when they're looking at politics? I mean, I don't know how to think about that last dichotomy. Things can be pesky and still part of life to deal with. Right. The, the, the same is true for the economic scarcity that we take for granted as right. um, being how we start thinking about economies. Right. Um, you know, that food doesn't fall from the heavens is, right. and that I need to make a living. Those are pesky. Right. But that's life. I probably should have said more like a, a pest that needs to be exterminated or something. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You're right. Of okay. course, things can be difficult and pesky, but we, um, we deal with them for the better. Uh, agreed. But, but, but to understand as part of the basic human social condition right. um, that we need to be doing the work to organize and restrain power at the same time, that's as much a basic feature of the human social condition as everything that the, that the economists teach us to understand about scarcity and the need to make choices uh, among uh, scarce options and the need to get resources uh, and information moved around. Mm -hmm. All of that's true, too. All of that is a basic feature of the human social order, uh, but it's not all there is to the human social order. And, and earlier, once again, you, you did say that anytime you have someone that, that may consider themselves like a radical individualist or there's someone that's a, very much a proponent of the market that doesn't um, take democracy as seriously when it comes to the open access order, you were saying they should certainly look at points in history they point at as, uh, as the good stuff and look at what it was coupled with, which, as you say, you will mostly find coupled with uh, victories when it comes to democracy and uh, m more people being franchised into the system and things like and, that. And very specific kinds of victories of democracy. Um, again, re restraints on the power of the wealthy and the power of the armed. So not exactly. So not as much as organizing to get things, but at the same time is organizing and uh, to, to get the victory to restrain certain people. That's right. Well. Yes. Earlier you were talking about that there are underlying moral similarities between liberalism and democracy. Please elaborate on that. Sure. This, this is a somewhat different point from everything that we've been talking about with respect to the open access order. Um, I think that both liberalism and democracy are theories about how we live in the world with equals with whom we disagree. And there are a variety of kind of fundamental but peaceful mechanisms for people to live among equals with whom they disagree. If we don't live among equals then disagreement isn't a problem because, well, the powerful get their way or the better get their way or whatever your vision of how it is that some are higher on the chain than others get their way. But once we believe that we're equals and that we all suffer from limited knowledge, we don't have direct access to the truth about morality, we don't have direct access to the truth about God, we don't have the ability to imagine whole economic systems in our head and so on and so on. We're all just stuck in a world among people who are equally limited to us and who have different visions and different desires than ours. I think there are a variety of mechanisms that we use to make peaceful coexistence possible. One of them, and the one that classical liberalism most tends to emphasize, is exchange. Um, I have a piece of land you have an idea about how that piece of land should be used that isn't what I'm doing with it. Well, the peaceful way to settle this disagreement is for you to offer me a price for it. Right. And 
if the price is high enough, it's higher than the value that I attribute to whatever I'm doing with it, then I peacefully sell you the land and you get to try your idea out. And if the price isn't high enough because you don't value the thing that you want to do with the resource that much, well, then I keep it and I continue to do the thing that I was doing. And exchange is, is a wonderful, wonderful way to settle all kinds of disagreements, especially, though not only, about the use of a scarce material world. Uh, but it's not the only mechanism. Another mechanism is disassociation. Once you understand society as groupish, then you're going to say a lot of the time what we're doing is embarking on shared enterprises with other people. We worship with this other group of people. We worship in common with them. Or we have an economic vision and we form a firm or a corporation or a guild or a union with them and we engage in the same economic activity together because we think we have a good idea about how to make things in the world. Or we have a university or, or, or uh, there are things that we do together. And then we reach a moment of disagreement. Disassociation is the mechanism for resolving disagreements in a peaceful way that says we're going to split. We're going to schism. We're going to go to our separate corners. Uh, we are each now going to found our own church. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a world that's not a return to a natural order of individuals. There's not a natural order of individuals to return to, uh, but it's a rearrangement of what the groups are such that now you have two new groups, each of which agree internally on the project that they're pursuing, settling the disagreement that was threatening the stability of the existing group. But another really basic ordinary mechanism for peacefully settling disagreements is voting. It's a mechanism that works within all of those groups. Uh, it's not the case that a church or a corporation or a union schisms in the face of every disagreement. Most disagreements, most of the time, you work them out and part of what working them out means is at a certain point you vote. Um, voting is a really pervasive feature of associational life. And typically, straightforwardly majoritarian voting. If an issue isn't important enough for us to split and dissolve the whole organization, what do we do? We vote and we settle it for now. We move on. Maybe we'll contest it again later. But that's part of how we live with our disagreements. We say, because this disagreement isn't worth splitting up over, right. we vote. What we don't do within the association is bargain. We don't make side payments to each other and say, well, I really want to win this next dispute at, in departmental politics, so I'm going to pay you for your vote. Everyone, every association understands that, that is a corruption of the shared enterprise because voting has its own kind of dignity, its own status as a way to settle peaceful disagreements. Uh, now, what does that mean? Well, freedom of association, which includes freedom of religion in important ways in the way I'm talking about it, freedom of association is a core value of liberalism. Market exchange is a core value of classical liberalism, at least. I think that when we look at it this way, we see that democratic voting has a lot of the same moral structure. Uh, there are different moments when we're going to rely on different of these mechanisms. And often we will use them in cooperation with each other. As I say, we vote within associations a lot of the time. Um, and associations will have to bargain with outsiders in order to buy the land to put a church on. They, n none of these are master concepts that exclude all the others. But that means we also don't exclude voting as part of the normal business of how we peacefully live under conditions of disagreement with equals, which means people who don't know the right answer with any more certainty than we do. That means we don't have any more certain access than they do either. And a lot of the time, just like in a market, I have to say, my best bet is that I have a pr more productive use for that land than you do, and I'm going to put money on my bet and buy the land from you. doesn't mean I know that it's true. It's a bet. It's an, uh, when we disagree about the conditions of our coexistence, a lot of the time, the natural mechanism to rely on is a vote to settle the disagreement for now. And that's an ordinary fact of life among equals with whom we disagree. And I think the sharp dichotomization between liberalism and democracy, between what Constant understood to be the liberty of the ancients and the liberty of the moderns, I think that tends to obscure it. I think it tends to obscure how much equals who disagree with each other and need peaceful ways to coexist are going to have democracy as one of the arrows in their quiver, one of the tools in their toolbox 
for doing that. So you would go as far as to say that someone trying to get rid of the pest of voting, if that's the way they view it, they're actually attempting to get rid of something that a basic fact of life. As, and, and, a, and a basic liberal fact of life. Right. Um, if you really take seriously that we are equals in a world of disagreement trying to peacefully resolve our differences, I don't think that you can do that while abolishing this one of the most important tools. I'm not a radical Democrat. I'm not a Democrat to the exclusion of liberalism. It's not that I'm saying voting is the solution, but I think voting is absolutely an inescapably normal solution right. to many of the problems that we face as equals in a world of disagreement and limited knowledge. So we, you gave you gave the example, for instance, let's say a religion or a church. There's a disagreement. Maybe there'd be a schism. Uh, but ultimately, that's these groups dealing internally with their own orders. What do you think the fascination is when it comes to especially like populist politics, for instance, that there, there seems to be this fascination with wanting to externally order everything? It's not just enough that these people in their minds can go away and have their own life. There is usually somebody on the other end of the rope being blamed for tugging it, that there's a problem with, quote, the economy or, or the state of affairs. And it's not just enough that they're left alone oftentimes for a lot of people. A lot of people want to see the society ordered beyond them in their neighborhood the way they want. Where does that temptation come from? Are these people ultimately just not, quite honestly, uh, people that we could say are subscribers to, to liberal principles? Or, Well, there, there are always very many people who are not liberals. Um, of course. And um, often what you're looking at in politics is just people who have really different political commitments and think that their vision of the world, which includes how to order other people, uh, by far morally outweighs any legitimate moral interest in the equal freedom of other people. Uh, so if you're asking, where does that come from? I'll say, well, it, we, we, we never had any particular reason to think that everyone was a liberal in politics. Right. Um, I think the, the interesting and hard questions are, why do some people who understand themselves to be liberals right. uh, make this... They seem to be able to reconcile that type of attitude with the idea that they are either a, quote, classical liberal or libertarian. Yes, yes. And and this is the thing that much more deeply concerns me and that I, I can't just say, well, of, of course, there are other people like that. I say, where, where did you go wrong? Um, and I'm not going to be shy about saying that that's the question I'm asking is, where did you go wrong? And I do think that there's there's a relationship between the kind of sociological individualism the image that all there is in the world are individuals mm -hmm. and political holism when you've made that move that Smith and Montesquieu warned about imaginatively abolishing the groupishness of people um, then you think the only way that we could act together at all and of course we at least sometimes need to act together in a world that has armies if nothing else uh, the only way we can act together is if we are all really genuinely one people. Hmm. And once you've got that thought in your mind and you confront the reality that other people still disagree, then you start trying to read them out of the category of the people. And that's the characteristic move of populist politics to, on the one hand, claim to speak in the voice of a unified people, not to claim to be on a side, but to say, we are the people against the elites, we are the people against the rulers, we are the people against those other people on the other side of the border. But to read out of the category of the people, everyone who disagrees with you, all dissident groups, the opposing political party, um, those who you've identified as elites, be they political or economic or educational or Jewish or whatever, the urge to have the moral authority of wholeness combined with the real particularity of really only being your side. That's what populism is like. And I think that the, the individualist contractarian imagination that doesn't leave space for the ordinariness of disagreement, the ordinariness of groups, of parties, uh, I think that's one of the things that creates a temptation for it. It's not the only thing that's going on, but I think it's one of the things that's going on. That's just not that's not only like an aversion to to quote the state or the government that they fear. It's ultimately an aversion to people that just don't think people like that. who disagree with them. Right. So, Jacob, we've talked about a lot. Uh, let's bring, if we can, full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the question today. 
what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you today on whether or not a liberal society needs to be democratic, if, if we can attempt to sum it up? So, I mean, my answer is yes, but that's not an interesting takeaway. The, the interesting takeaway, I hope, is to treat politics as inescapable and to understand that a, a liberal or classical liberal theory of society, an understanding of what our social orders in free societies would be like, has to be an understanding that makes a place for and has an account of politics and power. It can't be a theory that is only a theory of markets and economies. It can't even be a theory that is only a theory of those things and of private associations or family life or culture. Um, political power is going to be with us, and we need ways to think about how we manage it most successfully, most peacefully, in ways that are most compatible with the other things that we value in a liberal social order, but to treat it as an ongoing, perpetual part of the social landscape. That, I think, tends to push in the direction of taking democracy more seriously than a great deal of classical liberal thought has traditionally done. Great. I think that's a great place to end off. Jacob Levy, thank you very much for speaking to me today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine Elchidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.